0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rise Up Life on Fire podcast. And if you don't know me, my name is Krista, and I am super excited tonight to, to bring you an amazing, inspirational, powerhouse of a guest who is a dedicated advocate for awareness, prevention, education, and training on post traumatic stress injury and first responder suicide prevention. He speaks all over the country at law enforcement agencies and at first responder events. And I believe this is eight weeks for his book being on the be- Amazon bestselling list in a numerous categories. His book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma, which he co-wrote with uh, an amazing friend of his who is a PhD. Um, tackles the complexity of trauma within the law enforcement community, uncovering the unspoken barriers, and outlining a path to healing. So please welcome tonight, Michael Sugru. Hello. How
1: you doing? Thanks for having me on.
0: I'm so excited to have you. (laughs) I like talking to people who have a ton of experience serving their community, but who also have Turned it around to do something huge to help those who serve the community, and you have followed that pathway heart and soul. So, let's begin today, just talking a little bit about who who you are and who you were as a little boy. So, who was Michael as a little boy?
1: Um, you know, I was born and raised in the Bay Area here in California, and. You know, as far back as I can remember, I've always been driven. I've always had a path. I've always had a plan. Um, It's just, I don't know, some people call it a calling. And for me, it came at a very young age. My uh, stepfather, he's the one who raised me along with my mother. And he was my hero. I mean, I looked up to him, you know, since day one. And he was in law enforcement. And he actually first brought me into the fold. At eight years old, believe it or not, and I was a volunteer for a local police department here in the Bay Area, and you know it was nothing all that crazy, but I would like wash patrol calls, cars. I would like file paperwork. Um, I'd hang around the station, and the coolest part was I got a laminated like official ID card, and I remember just feeling like part of this family, like part of this group that was bigger than I was. And the highlight every year was riding in the annual parade with McGruff. And that was something that I always look forward to. And I did that for a little bit. And eventually my father actually switched departments to the Richmond police department, which is also here in the Bay area, a much different department, much bigger, uh, in a very bad area. Um, at the time it was one of the most dangerous cities in California, if not the nation. And I actually became a police explorer there as a teenager and would do things like volunteer at for like parking control at fairs and different events. I would go to meetings. I went to like a little mini police academy for police explorers. But the highlight really was doing ride-alongs. I mean, that's really where I solidified that this is what I wanted to do. You know, being there in the passenger seat and getting a ride with actual officers and seeing what they do day in and day out and just that constant adrenaline rush of excitement going from call to call to call and stopping different people and it was you know all the way back then that i knew this is what i was going to do and so honestly i aligned my life for a career in public service pretty much as far back as i can remember
0: so you always knew then you didn't even have there was never anything else for you no other job experiences you just jumped headlong in
1: yeah my path changed a little bit you know my original plan was to go into federal law enforcement into the fbi and because of that i aligned myself with a career in the military first and in college i got a full scholarship through the reserve officer training program through the air force and I went into military police which is known as security forces in the air force and my original plan was to do my 4 years which was my commitment and get out and then go into the FBI but a lot of things happened you know 911 happened I lived all over the world I worked with different federal agencies and I just realized that federal law enforcement wasn't where my heart was it was actually back home in local law enforcement so I ended up staying a little bit longer. I stayed in six and a half years active duty, and luckily I got stationed back in California at Travis Air Force Base, which literally was minutes from where I grew up. And at that time, I started applying to local law enforcement agencies. So I would say the path was always known. You know, there there were some changes, um, some bumps in the road, but you know the whole the whole way along, I knew what I wanted to do, and so this literally was my dream from day one.
0: So do you think your identity, are you one of those folks who's like just heart and soul? You just are an officer.
1: You know, that's not my identity now, but I think for a long time, that was my soul, almost soul identity. And, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, you know, because the thing is for me, it was more than a job. I mean, it was a calling and I saw it as a higher purpose. And it's something that I'll always be proud of. I mean, my service, my commitment is something that I look back on fondly. Um, I think where we kind of lose sight of things is where we realize that that is important, but there's a lot of other things that are actually more important, like our families, um, like our loved ones, and in my case, like my daughter. And so when I look at what is my identity today, first and foremost, it's a father. I mean, for me, that is... The most important thing that i've ever done it's the most important thing i ever will do and that is my my true purpose i mean sure there's you know i speak and i had a book just come out and i've done other things but what comes first and foremost is my daughter and, and that's what matters most to me
0: so where did things transition for you because i know that you retired early so what brought all of that about why early retirement
1: so about eight years into my civilian career as a police officer i was a newly promoted sergeant and i was actually involved in a very heinous critical incident one where i almost died um, one where other people almost died and to make a long story short you know i had to take a life to save lives and that incident forever changed me as a person it forever changed the path that I was on. And I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, that eight years of going through my career in law enforcement, I had been exposed to numerous traumatic incidents and I never really addressed them. I didn't talk about them. I pretended like all these incidents and events just didn't bother me and they didn't phase me. And for me, this incident as a brand new Sergeant is really what pushed me over the edge. And it's, it's where I lost that feeling of invincibility. I mean, up to that point, I'd been involved in numerous dangerous situations. I mean, tons. I'd pulled out my gun numerous times and, you know, was undercover for a couple of years on a state drug task force. But for whatever reason, for me personally, this incident made me realize that even though I knew it the whole time, that my life could be taken in literally a second, in a heartbeat. And I think what Made that so difficult and so impactful for me was that at the time my daughter was only two and a half years old. And as I mentioned, you know, earlier, is my daughter is my everything. And all I could think about was what's going to happen when I'm not here for my daughter? You know, is she going to remember me? Is she going to know how much I loved her? And that was one of my biggest fears. And so I went from literally this feeling of being on top of the world where everything was perfect. I mean, my career was perfect my home life was perfect. Everything was going as I planned it to be. And this incident in literally a second changed all of that.
0: Was that just like a moment of clarity for you? Or was there a process of, you know, just, just feeling a little out of sorts or anything? Was it? I wouldn't
1: say it was a moment of clarity. I mean, the only thing that was clear immediately was that I almost died. And, you know, what happened was, is there was a series of events where my life started to spiral downward. And so, you know, there were signs and symptoms of what I call post-traumatic stress injury, you know, things where I immediately felt disconnected. I started isolating. I started distancing myself from my wife at the time, from friends, family. Um, You know, I was having constant nightmares. I couldn't sleep. I was drinking more. And so there was things happening, but... I was in denial of what these things were. You know, I didn't acknowledge the fact that I had post-traumatic stress injury. I don't even think at that point I really knew what it was because I w- I never experienced it up to that point. And so, you know, there was ultimately years of suffering and silence because our culture, you know, I was ashamed to ever admit that I had these feelings or I had this fear of constantly being killed or dying. And so because of that, I kept everything inside. I didn't have anybody I felt I could trust where I could actually openly talk to them about this stuff. And so because of the culture at that time, and it's still, you know, things have gotten better, but it still prevails today where we simply do not talk about this stuff. We equate being human, you know, talking about our feelings, acknowledging, the effects of the job, we acknowledge that as being weak, you know, not as being courageous or being strong. And the reality of it is, is that, you know, we're all human. And this job is very unique that we have, you know, being a first responder, whether you're a firefighter, a police officer, a paramedic, a dispatcher, you know, we're literally exposed to hundreds and hundreds of of traumatic incidents over years. In some cases now it could be up to 30 years of a career. Whereas the average citizen, maybe they might have one, maybe two in a lifetime, but yet we have hundreds of on the job traumatic incidents. And on top of that, we have all the same normal things at home. You know, we have health problems. We have family members who have health problems, deaths in the family you know, cancer diagnoses, financial issues, um, you know, so we're facing the, the normal things that everybody else does. But on top of that, you know, we're just seeing the negative and the worst of the worst in society day in and day out. And that's what takes a toll on us.
0: I think one of the scariest things is oftentimes as a first responder, you don't know the toll that it's taken until many years later. I remember the first year working in the emergency room. I was the girl who was like, bring it on. Bring me the worst of the worst. I'll take the worst cases. I'd be the volunteer that would you know, want to be in, in, in the trauma room. I would want to take the car accidents that came in because I didn't care what I saw. I didn't care how bad it was. I just wanted to be there and do the jobs. And I was excited about it. And it wasn't until just even a few years ago that the nightmare started hitting. And I started realizing the things that I saw. So it can just sit dormant for a long time. And you don't actually even know that accumulation of damage that's happened. So it's.
1: I think a lot of that is that, you know, we're operational. We're good. I mean, we can operate in the most stressful situations and just go from call to call to call. And what I've seen Not just in my own experience, but in the volunteer work that I do and the people that I talk to across the country, is that oftentimes people don't realize how messed up they are until they actually retire. And usually it's a year, maybe a two in after retirement, where they're not operational now and they have nothing but time on their hands to start thinking about things. And they start looking back at literally all these events that they can't forget, you know, they can't get out of their mind. In some cases, they can't get out of their dreams or their nightmares. Um, Another common thing I've seen, which is very similar is that oftentimes when officers are off duty on a physical injury, let's say they have like a, a knee issue or a back issue, maybe they're out getting physical therapy or getting surgery, but again, they're not operational. They're at home. They're now disconnected from their blue family. You know, their brothers and sisters aren't reaching out to them. They don't have that interaction. They don't have that operational mindset. And that's when, you know, in addition to these physical injuries, they start realizing the actual true toll of the job, you know, the toll of all these traumatic incidents year over year.
0: Was it your experience at all that were you given any informed consent or any preventative training when you first started the job? In terms of like an awareness of post-traumatic stress and suicide prevention and mental, you know, mental health awareness, was any of that present when you started?
1: You know, I remember here in the state of California, the academy I went to, I think it was 880 hours. And they have these things called California post learning domains. You know, they're very specific, these different blocks of instruction. And I do remember a section on mental health. But the thing was, it wasn't geared towards our mental health. It was geared towards dealing with people on the street, you know, the th- the people we called 5150s or the people that were gravely disabled or a danger to themselves on how we deal with those people. But there was no discussion or talk of, you know, the reality, the toll that this job is going to take, you know, not just on our health, but on our relationships, on our marriages, on our children. You know, there is no discussion about that. And I can remember everybody just being so gung ho that, you know, all you want to do is learn how to shoot guns. You want to drive cars fast. You want to go through all the different scenarios, you know, like the domestic violence or the DUI, learn arrest and control techniques, defensive tactics. And that's really where the focus is. And of course the laws and the procedures, and that's, you know, reinforced in the field training program, which is right after the academy. But I think what really would have helped is maybe plant that seed and have senior officers come in, you know, maybe for a couple hours, and literally just be vulnerable, be open, and just talk about the reality of the job. Talk about the toll of it, the effect it's had on their mental health, their physical health, on their families, you know, on their different marriages, on their children, you know, plant that seed, But none of that was done. You know, we didn't talk about it. It wasn't discussed. I mean, we know that We can die. We know that we can be killed. I mean, that's the reality. And we train literally over our career thousands of hours on how to prevent being killed, on how to go home safe every night, you know, from the bad guys on the street. But the realities are, is that we are much more likely to die by our own hands by suicide than by any assailant on the street. That's the reality. And yet we don't spend Hardly any time training for that, training for our own mental health, training to save our own lives. And that's where we need to start putting our focus and our energy, because we're losing men and women every single day across this country to suicide. And that is a fact.
0: Absolutely. And that is why you're doing what you do. That's why you go and speak at the events that you speak at.
1: Well, my life is dedicated to this because, you know, the the facts are that I didn't want to be here at, at one point and I didn't want to live anymore. And my life got so dark and I got so desperate that I started putting myself in dangerous situations at work, hoping I died in the line of duty. And it literally took a series of events to pull me out of this darkness. And one of those events was my own very best friend tried to kill himself when I was on duty. And, you know, thank God he survived that, but he's the one that actually saved my life because he got, he gave me the strength and courage to finally ask for help after years of suffering. And, and since then, you know, I raised my hand for help at the very end of 2016 and I spent years and years in recovery for post-traumatic stress. And I've done a bunch of different things from, you know, different week long, retreats for post-traumatic stress injury to meetings to therapy to medications um, to medical procedures to reading to meditation to you know group exercise therapy i mean you name it i've done it and the facts are that i'm still doing things today to sustain my recovery but i'm living proof that no matter how dark your life may be no matter how desperate you are there is recovery from this you can get better and you know the truth is, is that today I have a much better life than I ever had before. I have a whole new life, and that's why I go across the country is to show people that they're not alone. The things that I talk about, the feelings that I share, there are countless, countless brothers and sisters across this country who are going through the exact same things, who have felt the exact same feelings, but yet. They feel like they're 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 all alone, and the facts are that you're not alone. There are countless resources out there available, and many of those resources are actually listed in the back of my new book.
0: And we will put a link to where you can get the book um, on the anchor when I when I post the recording for this. So you will have ways to get a hold of that book, and I do hope that you do that. Um, He's one of many recent uh, police and fire department personnel stepping up and and creating these books to to show you their stories, their experiences and their pathway to healing. So you guys are all getting brave enough to stand, stand up and speak your truth. And that's really important because the more people who do that, the easier it's going to be.
1: Absolutely. It takes teamwork in this fight, you know, not one person. Can, can do it. And we all need to be out there speaking the truth and just being open and vulnerable about this stuff because it's human. It's normal. And that's what we need to do is smash the stigma, <clears throat> normalize this discussion, and just talk about it openly.
0: Uh, at battle to Be, we have a, a little bit of an odd way of looking at things. We're coming at it from a preventative standpoint, much more than a standpoint of recovery. So we've noticed there's so many resources for recovery, but why are we not training ahead of time? And we want to go all the way back to grade school and literally start teaching people coping skills, resourcing skills, how to regulate your nervous system, how to be aware of stress and to notice when you're feeling stressed out, how to think differently so that you're not just focused on the negative. And you can focus on the good that's happening in your world. Just all of these basic things, these life coaching skills that most of us never get. Because statistics have shown us that those are preventative measures, that those are actually ways to keep from getting post-traumatic stress if you have them all in place ahead of time. So we're hoping hoping to create some systems that, start at the beginning from pre-hire and actually talk about it all ahead of time and give coping and resources and then regular mental health maintenance just like going to the gym and if everybody's doing it then nobody's broken or nobody needs fixing because they want to see a counselor it's just part of the every every week routine you just do it and i think that will help yeah, absolutely because
1: if- the facts are that post-traumatic stress injury is not a foregone conclusion. Not everybody's gonna get it. And the facts are that I waited too long to ask for help. I think if I would have asked for help early on, I'd still be working today. And so, like you said, if we normalize this, if we make it part of you know the very beginning and we carry it on throughout our careers, I firmly believe that we can work an entire career, You know, whether that's 20 years or 30 years, and we can come out fully healthy mentally and physically on the other side. But we have to take the steps before, during and after to ensure that, you know, and to maintain our healthy relationships at home and not bring the stress of the job home and take it out on our families, but actually address it within ourselves.
0: And you, you were divorced when you were working. How, no, I,
1: I was married when my incident happened and at the height of my trauma, I went through a horrendous divorce. And, you know, the reality is is that I made a lot of mistakes early on in my career and I made a conscious decision to not bring the job home because I felt like I was protecting my spouse at the time and my family. And I didn't have that open communication that is so very important. And so I'm not suggesting that we bring the gritty details You know, home to our loved ones and to our families. But we need to make it clear that when we're having a bad day, it's not because of of them, it's because of something that happened on the job. And we need to communicate, you know, when we've had that bad day, maybe when we need a little time to decompress. And then after that, reengage with our family members and talk about it. Again, not graphic details, but it could be as simple as like, look, you know, I went to a horrific car accident today and it really affected me. And it's, it's really brought me down. It has nothing to do with you. I just need to get through this. And, you know, I, I'd like to talk to you about it and just let you know how I'm feeling about it. I mean, this is how we normalize it, right? But we don't do that. What we do is we come home pissed off. We come home in a bad mood. You know, we then turn to alcohol. We start to numb ourselves. We're self-isolating. We're doing all these negative coping mechanisms that are honestly accepted within first responder world, you know, like drinking, gambling, extramarital affairs, maybe porn addiction, I mean, substance abuse, all these things which have detrimental effects on us and on our post traumatic stress, we need to start using the healthy coping mechanisms. And first and foremost, it's being vulnerable and it's communicating. I mean, those two things together can truly make a difference. I mean, it can save lives.
0: Absolutely. So how do you feel about early on in the career? Do you think that it would be beneficial to bring spouses in for some co-training? So spouses do some ride-alongs and kind of get a little bit of a feel for what the for what the job entails. And they get an idea of the language and the kind of things that you see, and then give them the resources to have uh, and awareness of how to speak to you about your job. Do you think that? Yeah,
1: can- of course. I mean, one thing that one of my own agencies started doing um, shortly before I left was every year they would have like a two, three day event where they would bring in the spouses and partners, significant others of the officers. And there was all kinds of different things that happened You know, within those days, but they had open discussions with the administration. They got to see different forms of training, like shoot, don't shoot scenarios. They got to go to the firing range. They got to learn about all the ins and outs of the department, the different sections, the different assignments, the different capabilities. They got to talk to therapists and counselors. You know, more importantly, they got to talk to other spouses and significant others and realize that, again, they're not alone. That, you know, being a partner or a spouse of a first responder, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of work and it takes a very special person to take on that role. And so like that event, I think like having something like that whether it's quarterly, once a year, um again, maybe a day, maybe two days, three days, that could make, I mean, monumental changes where you're bringing them into this fold because, you know, for some agency it's kind of like us and them. It's like, you know, you're at work and It's like this little thing where not everybody knows what's going on there or we can make it a true family environment because a lot of times people talk about the first responder family or the law enforcement family. Well, if that's the case, let's bring our own spouses, partners and children because at the end of this two, three day event that I told you that my agency did at the very last day, they would have an event where they bring the children as well. And they would do like a barbecue and it would be a, a fun event, a social event where everybody's getting together. And so I would definitely like to see more of that. I think that can really make a difference.
0: I think that's hugely valuable to bring the family into the family so that they're not out, outsiders. There is definitely there's definitely an us versus them. And it, people who don't know the language and don't know the experiences, like you, you almost know, you walk into a room and you know who the who the people are that are in and who the people are that are not and you just like you just immediately are connected and it's good for the connection side of things but uh if you're on the outside it's it's not so good so i think that's where we lose a lot of ability to reach out to other people is feeling like they're on the outside of some kind of wall and like they're not safe like they're not a part of it or they won't understand if if that wall is thinner, <laughs> a little more pliable, I think, I think that would be drastically different for us.
1: Absolutely, yeah. and another key part of that is knowing the resources, you know, knowing about EAP or knowing about wellness programs or knowing about the department therapists or retreats like West Coast Post Trauma Retreat, but you know, not only letting the officers know about these resources, which I don't think we do enough of, but also letting the family members know About what resources are out there because you know, oftentimes our loved ones, our spouses, our children, they're going to see the warning signs, they're going to know when something's off, they're going to know when something's not right. And if they have a list of resources or know at least where they can turn for help, I think that can also make a critical difference. And then also knowing that they can trust these people, you know, knowing the chief or the captains or the lieutenants on a first name basis, where If need be, they can pick up the phone and feel comfortable and just say, look, you know, I need to call you because I'm really worried about, you know, my husband. He's something's off and I know he was involved in that incident and, you know, I I need some help here. But establishing those open lines of communication, I mean, those that can save lives. I mean, simply put, it will save
0: lives. So I'm going to ask you a hard question. The last few years have been very different the way that community has thought about and treated police officers. How do you feel like how do you feel that's going to impact the next few years? How do you feel like our officers are handling that?
1: Well, there's a lot to that question, and you know the facts are that we are in a very difficult time where our officers are literally on an island where they don't feel supported by their own administrations. Uh, many chiefs, you know, they have to fall within the politics, and you've got city managers and mayors and council people, um, sheriffs, all these elected officials, and so there's a lot of political pressure going on, and literally, there's no support at any level, and you know, I'm glad you're bringing that up because we need to also look inward and look at what can we do better to improve this relationship. And even like bringing our families in, we need to bring the public in. We need to educate them on the fact that we are human, educate them on the things that we see and deal with and how it affects us. And that's part of the reason why Dr. Shauna Springer and I wrote this book. You know, first and foremost, it was to save first responder lives and military lives. But this book is not just for first responders, veterans, their loved ones. This book is for everybody. And I've actually, you know, I actually did this myself for a gym I work out with. I reached out to four people who I've seen for a while, I didn't know them, they didn't know me, they didn't know what I did. And I actually approached them, they had no affiliation with law enforcement. And to be honest with you, they didn't have I would say the best opinion or best views of law enforcement. And I actually had them read this book and it literally changed their entire perspective on how they look at police officers right now. I'm not saying that that's going to make up for all the bad experiences they had. I'm not saying it's going to erase what things they may have dealt with in their own personal lives. But the fact that by reading this book opened their eyes and change their perspective, and let them see the human side behind the uniform, because that's what we need to do. As agencies, as first responders, we need to see the public, see the human side, the real us behind the uniforms. And so we need to do a better job by bringing them in and educating them as to what we have to do, and the decisions, the split second decisions, in many cases, life or death, that we have to make. And so I think there is hope. I think things are starting to turn around. I think the worst of the worst time was about a year, year and a half ago. I think we really hit a rock bottom and times are truly tough right now. But I think the public is starting to realize that first and foremost, you know, we can't defund the police. If anything, we need to fund the police better. We need to provide more resources. You know, we need to provide mental health resources to our officers, as well as to those in our community. And so there's different ways that we can work together, both the agency and the public, to make these things happen. So I I see things as moving in the right direction, in a positive direction. And I truly have hope that things are slowly starting to get better.
0: Good. And you're noticing a shift departmentally as well with a lot of the people that you're talking to. Some of these more aggressive tactics to bring mental health to the forefront of conversation are starting to be implemented more naturally. They're starting to be accepted more often.
1: Absolutely. And what I love is when I go to a conference full of you know police chiefs and sheriffs and the high ups of, of these departments and the whole conference is all shaped around officer wellness and mental health. I mean, that that shows you that people are starting to listen to this, that they're starting to value it and that changes are starting to happen. And, and don't get me wrong, there is still a long ways to go. And, and depending on where you're at in this country, you know, like California, for instance, even within the state, there's different areas where some areas are much more advanced, much more progressive than others. Um, but I've been to places in the Midwest where honestly, they're behind the times. And I've had officers line up to speak with me after I've given my presentation to talk about how they've been outcasted by their peers and by their higher ups because they did ask for help. And so I do know there's a lot of work to be done, but I also know that there are positive changes being made and things are starting to happen. And because of that, lives are being saved. That's the reality of it. By, by talking about this stuff, lives are being saved and that's what matters most.
0: So thank you so much for being here with us. What is the most important thing? What would you want to leave our audience with?
1: It's simple. And that is if you, you're you listening to this or watching it and you're sitting there thinking that you're alone, you're sitting there suffering in silence, you know, just have no hope, no faith, know that it can get better. Know that there is hope, that there is help but you have to have the strength and courage to raise your hand and ask for that. And I promise you, if you do, and it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of perseverance and patience, but there is a whole new life on the other side. Just ask for help, please. You're not alone.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, please do look up the book Relentless Courage by Michael Sugru and Dr. Shauna Springer. It is available on Amazon and it's maintained its bestseller ranking since it came out. So you absolutely won't want to miss it. I will, uh, the link is on the Facebook posts with this live. I will also put the link on the permanent anchor uh, post for this. So make sure that you look that up. Uh, make sure that you look Michael up if you are in need of an amazing, amazing speaker uh, and you know of a convention that he just can't miss. Uh, make sure that you do that. Again, if you are struggling, please reach out. We are p- compiling a list of resources for our website. We have a number of other organizations that we are partnered with or that we. Our referral uh, partners with, and they also are compiling resource lists. So, we are striving to get all of these resources together so that you guys all know, no matter where you are in the country, where you can reach out and who, what nonprofit organizations are vetted and are offering free services or low cost services for you and for your families. So, we will make sure that you have that information. Um, tonight, I want to I want to thank my sponsors, Right Next Door Designs, and our brand new member of the board, Michelle Mason Harper. Um, we are extraordinarily happy to have her uh, on our team. I think she's going to be an amazing asset for us. And we are actually still looking for some board members. So if you love what Battle to Be does and you want to get involved, we definitely can use some amazing folks who have the heart for this work and who want to help us out. So again, thank you so much for being with us tonight and have an amazing day. We will see you again on Thursday.